Amen. All right, let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of Micah, the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 this morning, the book of Micah chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 2. So the book of Micah chapter 5, and beginning in verse number 2, those well-known prophecies, and um, we're going to use this as our launch pad this morning. So Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, and beginning in verse number 2. Once you find it, let's go ahead and stand in reverence to, uh, to God's word this morning. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse number 2. The Bible tells us, But thou, Bethlehem Euphrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Thank you, Lord God, for not just this, but all the prophecies concerning the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of our Savior. And Lord God, we thank you that we can stand here today and be assured that it has been fulfilled. Lord, we celebrate the birth of our Savior. We acknowledge, Lord God, his death and his resurrection every Sunday as we gather together as a church. And Lord, I pray now that you would just bless in the preaching of your word. Father God, that you would use it for your glory and honor. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Micah chapter 5, verse number 2 here, was actually written some 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. And Micah is one of those little-known minor prophets. Now, we don't call them major prophets and minor prophets because some are less important than the others or because some are more essential than the others. We simply call them major prophets and minor prophets because of the size of their books. Uh, Micah is a minor prophet, and uh, many Christians are familiar with the exploits and prophecies of Daniel. We've been dealing with Daniel in the, uh, in the uh, Sunday school hour. And, of course, many of us are very familiar with Daniel. Daniel went to Babylon during the captivity, and, and uh, Daniel purposed in his heart he not defile himself. Daniel was thrown in the den of lions, and, of course, there's much more to Daniel than that. But your average Sunday school uh, a, a student is at least familiar with Daniel and his exploits. Very few, however, know much about Micah. Why, even in his day, Micah would not have been well known. Micah was actually a contemporary to Isaiah. Of course, we are very familiar with Isaiah and his many exploits. Isaiah ministered directly to the kings in Jerusalem giving them advice, even telling King Hezekiah how to conduct himself during the brutal Assyrian siege. You remember that when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem after conquering city after city after city and, and then dared, just dared Hezekiah to fight and or to surrender. I'm sorry, not to fight, but to surrender. And, 
Hezekiah, of course, was getting all of his advice from Isaiah, who said, just stand pat and trust the Lord. We're very familiar with the exploits of even a contemporary of Micah, Isaiah, who would minister to kings throughout his ministry. Micah, on the other hand, ministered to the common folk who were greatly suffering during these times. So even though we don't hear much about Micah, you can believe that God did not view his ministry as any less significant to that of Daniel, Jeremiah, or Isaiah. It's kind of like today, you know, there are some preachers that you hear a lot about, and there are some preachers you don't hear anything about, but every preacher is struggling with his ministry, and every preacher is doing uh, or is striving to do God's will, and God doesn't hold some more important than he does others. Same with Christians within the local church. God calls some of the uh, servants in the local church to actually be more in the forefront Others are more in the background, but their work is not any less important, nor is it any less noticed by God. God knows exactly who Micah is, even though we don't. In Micah chapter 5, verse number 2, we find one of the most specific of all the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Why Micah declares with surety that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, when you fast forward 700 years to the beginning of the Christmas story, it seems that Micah 5.2 might have been a huge miss on the part of the prophet. First, much like the obscurity of the prophet that proclaimed this location, God chose to use a simple carpenter and an unknown maiden to bring this to pass. Oh, nobody famous and nobody well-known, just Joseph and Mary. Now, we're, we're aware of them today. However, in their day, they would be considered pretty much nobodies. So even if it did happen in Bethlehem, how could it possibly be proven? And where would there be a record of it when two unknowns would be used of God to bring it to pass? Well, another reason Micah chapter 5 verse number 2 might seem like a huge miss at the beginning of the Christmas story. Another problem had to do with the location of the individuals God chose in that they did not live in Bethlehem, but a town 90 miles uh, to the north of Bethlehem. Now, 90 miles today may not seem like a long distance, but when you did not have trains, planes, and automobiles... I want to tell you, 90 miles was a very long distance, particularly for a pregnant woman. I mean, we tell we tell ladies today when they're in their third trimester, don't don't travel, even though we have the luxury of cars and and planes. But they're told, boy, in that time, don't go anywhere. Don't travel. Try to imagine what it must have been like. When God called Gabriel, and God said to Gabriel, Gabriel, I have an assignment for you. 
You know, the angels had been waiting for this, and just as mankind was anticipating it, the angels were anticipating it. Matter of fact, the Bible says that they, they diligently searched into these matters. You and I need to understand that the angels are not uh, all-knowing. They are not all-powerful. And so they get their messages from God just as we get our messages from God. And I'm sure the day came where God called Gabriel, the archangel, and, uh, and, or the, 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 the herald angel, the one who would bring the news and said, Gabriel, I've got a message for you, and I've got a message for you to deliver. It's time. And Gabriel said, it's time. Time for what? It's time for the Messiah to be born. And I, you can imagine that Gabriel, like, uh, like us, that Gabriel got excited. And Gabriel thought, wow, I get to be the one to, to deliver the message. So, God, I'm sure you want me to go to Bethlehem, as was mentioned in the prophecy. And God said, no, I'm not sending you to Bethlehem. Gabriel says, you're not going to send me to Bethlehem. Well, where are you going to send me? Now, try to imagine that maybe the angels are kind of like we are in that when God gives us a, a message that we're not exactly sure about, we begin to question him on it. Or when he answers a prayer and we're not, uh, we don't really care for the answer, or God doesn't answer the prayer in the way that we want him to answer, we try to give God all of the uh, information just so he understands better. Gabriel might have said to the Lord, well, Lord, you know the word better than anyone. You know scripture better than anyone. Uh, The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Why do you want me to go to Nazareth? And then as Gabriel received his orders and he went out of God's office, if you will, and the angels began to inquire, what did God want with you? Well, he has a very important message for me to give. The Messiah is going to be born. Well, you must be going to Bethlehem. Actually, no. I'm going to Nazareth. 90 miles north. That, that, that little tiny town up there on the cliff up there. Well, why in the world would you be going to Nazareth? Luke chapter 1, verse number 26. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Luke. It's where we're going to be for the remainder of the service this morning. But in Luke chapter 1, verse number 26, it becomes very confusing because the scripture says in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and verse number 26, scripture says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And again, well, surely Gabriel would have to tell Mary, verse number 27, he went to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this would be. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth the son 
and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she also uh, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing is impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Now we can stop right there because now the, uh, Mary has, uh, uh, she has uh, uh, acknowledged that it's true. With God nothing is impossible. And even though I have not yet known a man, God can make this come to pass. And so angel presents, or Mary presents herself and says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. She says, uh, she goes on and, and says, uh, be it unto me according to thy word. She's opened up the door. Are there any more instructions? Well, now you and me, the way that we work, and I'm sure even the angels in heaven perhaps were thinking, Gabriel, you need to tell her, go to Bethlehem. She needs to get there now because she certainly isn't going to want to travel once she gets pregnant. And Micah chapter 5 verse number 2 said that the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem. So don't forget about that part of the message. So Mary has opened the door. Is there anything else? In verse number 38, the angel departed from her. Wow, does God know what he's doing? You ever ask that in your own life? I can tell you that many times in the ministry, I have asked that. In my own life, I have asked that. Lord, are, are you sure? But here's the thing. God is sure. And even if things don't seem to be headed in the right direction, they're headed in the same direction or the exact direction in which God wants them to go. We don't need to add to the scriptures. We don't need to take away from the scripture. The scripture is complete and God knows what he is doing. And so Gabriel did not add to God's message. And maybe there were some that said, you know, you should have given her a little boost at least Gabriel maybe giving her a little hint I mean the Messiah has to be born you do realize that if one prophecy is not fulfilled exactly the way the Old Testament said it would be fulfilled then it's all null and void there is no Messiah how can we let this one go because Micah chapter 5 verse number 2 was very specific. It was going to happen in Bethlehem. 
And so as we continue to read Gabriel's message, and it does not include instructions about going to Bethlehem, so as to fulfill Micah's prophecy, we might begin to wonder. Though everyone involved, perhaps the angels were stressing out over the matter, those who have seen God perform have perfect confidence that God's going to make it work. God had set his plan in motion from the beginning of the world. Every detail was going according to God's purpose. And let me just remind you that that was not just then. It is still today. Every detail is going according to God's purpose. Luke lays it all out for us by his detailed history when he informs us that all this took place when Herod, the self-proclaimed Herod the Great, was king of Judea. You see, Herod was not really a king at all. He had given himself that title. He was instead a vassal for the Roman Empire. Herod was a paranoid, self-loving, self-centered politician with an inferiority complex. Of course, we don't know politicians like that today. Thankfully, they're all, uh, they're all about others. But Herod would go on to kill. Matter of fact, when you study Herod, we're not even sure how many wives he had. Thus, we're not sure how many wives he killed. We know of a surety that he killed one wife and a couple of her sons, his sons, because he thought they were trying to poison them. When he offended Augustus, by the way, who was a bigger tyrant, Augustus was the Caesar in that day, Augustus announced that Herod would no longer be treated as a friend. Augustus' plan, however, to depose Herod was thwarted because Herod had a lot of friends. As a matter of fact, his family went way back. And so he had a lot of friends in Rome. And though Augustus wanted to get rid of Herod, he could not get rid of Herod. And so Augustus demanded something that would make Herod's life very difficult. Augustus demanded that there be a count of all the Jews so that they could be taxed. And so God knew all along there was going to be a feud between Herod and Caesar Augustus, and Caesar Augustus would try to depose Herod, but that plan would be thwarted. And so Caesar Augustus, who was a tyrant just like Herod, who was self-loving just like Herod, who was paranoid just like Herod, would say, well, fine, I've got to teach him a lesson. And so I'm going to make his life miserable. I'm going to make him count all the Jews, and then I'm going to make them go through a heavy tax. And thus we come to Luke chapter 2. And in verse number one, where the word of God says that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. 
And so verse number three says that all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, specifically Nazareth, 90 miles north of Bethlehem. uh, Joseph would have to go to uh, that city because he was the house and lineage of David, and Bethlehem was the city of David. And the Bible tells us Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, you do understand that there was no other circumstance in which these two would travel. She was great with child. And here's the thing. Uh, uh, They lived in a society where when a decree came from the Caesar, you did not write a letter and say, we'd like to be excused from this, please, particularly when it came to a census and a tax. My wife is in her third trimester. Please, we have rights. The people didn't have rights. And so every man, the Bible says, went to be taxed and therefore or went to be counted so they could be taxed. And therefore, Joseph and his very pregnant espoused wife, they were not married yet because Mary was still a virgin when she gave birth. And there they went to Bethlehem, barely making it in time for Mary to give birth. So not only did the Roman government assure that Micah's prophecy would be fulfilled, and this did not happen by accident, and now Gabriel is smacking himself on the forehead saying, I should have known God had it in control all along. And now all the angels in heaven are saying to themselves, well, you know, we've seen him do this before. He had it planned all along. And she being great with child barely makes it to Bethlehem. But here's the interesting thing. Because it was a census, there'd be proof that it happened. Even though Mary and Joseph were nobodies, it's funny that when it comes to taxation, everybody's a somebody. And there's always a record of it. And so there would be this record. So when people would question Mary and Joseph later, well, Jesus is of Nazareth. He was born in Nazareth. They'd say, well, he was raised in Nazareth, but he actually spent time in Egypt, and he was born in Bethlehem. And here is the record to prove it, because we had to go down there and be counted for the taxing. Isn't it amazing how God works? Specific. Now there's a record of it. We know that it happened. The Roman government assured that Micah's prophecy would be fulfilled. God uses non-believers to fulfill his will. The Roman government would provide the proof that there would be a record of it because the whole purpose was to be counted. An official government record that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem as was prophesied some 700 years before it ever happened. Now that brings us to the conditions in which Jesus was born. 
Jesus was born in a manger. The manger in which our Savior was born gives us some great reminders this morning. And I want us to look at three things. As we look at never room for Jesus, the lessons from the manger, the lessons of the manger. So three things that we can learn from the manger this morning. Three things we can learn from the conditions in which the Messiah was born. The, rem- the manger reminds us of the, some things. And the first thing that the manger reminds us of is his accessibility. So if you could just go ahead and move the slide one, Steve, because I, I know that we lost it there for a second. Um, it reminds us of his accessibility. You know, anyone can come to a manger. People always ask, well, if he was the king of kings and lord of lords, why not be born in a palace? Well, there's a multitude of reasons, but one of the things is in a palace, he's not accessible. And one of the things God wanted to make sure as the, is that Jesus, the Savior, was, uh, could be accessed by anyone. Anyone can come to a manger. You know, wouldn't it be nice if our governors were as accessible as Jesus? You ever tried to go visit the governor? Uh, If you haven't, it ain't going to happen if you're not a somebody. Tried to go visit the president. If you haven't, it's not going to happen unless you're a somebody. Here's the thing about a manger. Nobody's can visit a manger. Anybody can go visit a manger. As a matter of fact, God used shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night to visit the humble birthplace of the Savior. Many think that the wise men, who, by the way, were the Magi, and, and they, were, they were wealthy, and they were somebodies. Many believe the Magi went to the manger. They did not. They came after the birth of Jesus. It was the shepherds who came to the manger. Oh, and the little drummer boy, if you believe that story. Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and verse number 8. Says, and there were in the country shepherds abiding in their field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Our governor would deem them probably non essential. But Jesus says, no, they're essential. Everyone deserves to be saved, everyone deserves to know Christ as personal Savior. And so these blue-collar workers, literally the peasants, came to the manger to witness the birth of Jesus. Just as anyone can come to Jesus for his salvation. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 16 says, Let us, therefore, Come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You don't need a special pass. You don't need a, a, you don't need a special badge. You know, on, on Friday mornings, I go to the, uh, to the jail and I deliver commissary on Fridays. And one of the things that they check you for is a badge. Now, there's degrees of badges in the jail. And if you could have the lowest badge, that's the one that that I get to go in the jail. All it does is allows me to go in. 
But, you know, there are people with badges in the jail where they actually can use their badge to open doors. I have to get people to open doors for me. I have to push a button and, and, and call to the, uh, the control room so that they'll open the door for me. And uh, here's the thing. You don't need a special badge to see Jesus. You don't need special permission. You don't need to be a somebody. As a matter of fact, Jesus if you th- says, if you think you're a somebody, don't come to me because I'm going to resist you. Understand that we can come boldly. As a matter of fact, John chapter 1, verse number 12 says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, that means not royalty, anybody, not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why was Jesus born in a manger? Because it reminds me of this fact. He is accessible. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Even though there is none righteous, no, not one, anyone can be saved. Anyone can have their sins forgiven. Anyone can come to the King of kings and Lord of lords. His door is open. His throne is there. And anyone can come to him. Why the accessibility to the Savior also reminds us of the humble means by which Jesus came and by which Jesus lived. Jesus came and was born in a manger. Jesus lived as a poor man. Luke chapter 9, since we're in Luke, keep your finger in Luke 2, but Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. In verse number 57, Luke chapter 9, and in verse number 57, in Luke chapter 9, verse number 57, Luke chapter 9, verse number 57, and the word of God says that it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, and by the way, Matthew reveals to us that this certain man was a scribe. Say, well, why is that important? Well, because scribes were somebodies, which then explains to us why Jesus gave the answer that he gave. A certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. In other words, he says to that scribe, Listen, you are used to high society. You are used to uh, people honoring you. You are used to people, um, uh, boy, they, uh, they just esteem you. He goes, I want you to understand that following me is not going to make you special in the eyes of the world. As a matter of fact, here he is, the king of kings and the lord of lords. He doesn't even have a house. 
He doesn't have a home. He says, I want you to understand, nature is better to nature than man has been to me. And we, of course, know what the end game was or what the end of the story was. As far as man was concerned, they were going to take Jesus. They were going to march him out of Jerusalem. And they were going to give him the most humiliating death in that day, the death on the cross. And so he says, I I, I want to warn you. This is going to be a very humbling path you are about to take. This is going to be a a hard life. Are you sure as a scribe that that's what you want? The manger was just the beginning of the hardship of Jesus. And as a matter of fact, it may have been the most pleasant hardship that he'd have to go through in his life the remi- the manger reminds us of the humble means by which Jesus came and the hu- the humility by which he lived and it would be a great lesson to us in that we are to seek to serve and not to be served that God wants us to be humble in mark chapter 10 verse number 45 Jesus would say to his apostles, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And then, of course, in John chapter 13, when Jesus would get down and do the job of a servant and watch the, wash the feet of all the apostles. And then after he got up, John 13, verse number 12, says after he had washed their feet, and taken his garments, and was set down again. He said unto them, Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You know, there's no room for pride in the kingdom of God. And there's no room for pride in the church of God. We are here to serve one another. He would go on, Jesus would go on and says, I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. And by the way, let me just stop right here. Do you know that in that small congregation that Jesus even washed the feet of those who really didn't like him. See, there was a man there by the name of Judas Iscariot. And and I say that because I see this in the church. People will go out of their way for people they like. Sometimes you'll get family in a church, and people will go out of their way for family members. But if it's someone that they don't really care for, They won't even give them the time of day. Do you know what causes us to be like that? Pride. You know what pride is? It's sin. It's the same sin that the devil devil committed 
that brought him to where he is today. So Jesus could have gone down, and then when he came to Peter, he could have said, I am not washing your feet because you're going to humiliate me in just a few hours. And so do your own feet. And the reason I say that is because you'll see that in the church sometimes. Well, I'm not going to, people won't say that. But when you ask people to help certain individuals, they, they just, you can tell. It's the attitude is there. Jesus could have come to Judas Iscariot and said, you know, because of you, I'm going to have to go to that cross because you're going to sell me out. Wash your own feet. But he didn't. The Bible tells us that he washed every single foot of every single person that was there in that congregation. He's given us a lesson. We love these lessons until we have to personally apply them. That means I got to be a help to someone who I really don't care for. I got to be a help to someone who's hurt me and hurt me badly. That's exactly what that means. Do as I have done, Jesus says. I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Well, I just don't think I should have to do that for someone who's hurt me so bad. Are you greater than Jesus? Because until you've ascended to that greatness, and by the way, who's the other person who thinks they've ascended to that greatness? The devil. You're thinking just like the devil. Well, I'm not going to help that person. That person hurt me. Are you greater than Jesus? Until you are, or until we are, we need to humble ourselves. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Jesus didn't say you're, if you know him, you're happy. He says you're only happy if you, if you do these things. Humility, then, is the key to happiness in the Christian life. Say, what's the key to happiness in the Christian life? Submission, humility. That's the key to happiness. The world will tell you just the opposite. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You be you. You live your truth. That's why we're so miserable today. We live in a miserable society because no one wants to be told what to do. And I'm all about me and, and, and my truth. No wonder we are constantly challenged to be humble and serve one another in the word of God. In Galatians chapter 5. Paul would write, for brethren, you've, be called unto, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Boy, we could stay on this one for a long time. Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. That, it's my right. We're all about rights today. But Paul says, you have the right to be an encouragement and a help and a servant to others. 
Use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, that means to fulfill yourself, but by love serve one another for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The manger reminds us of his accessibility. And that accessibility reminds us of his humility. And that, of course, reminds us of how far we really are from where Jesus wants us to be. No wonder all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, not only does it remind us of his accessibility, but we'll look at these other two very quickly. It reminds us of his ability. It reminds us of his ability. Here is the great thing about Jesus being born in a manger. Who would know it? I mean, there were there was no uh, advertisements. Boy, when royalty is born today, it's a big deal. When royalty is married today, it's a big deal. My, they spend all kinds of money. As a matter of fact, um, if I'm not mistaken, and I very well could be, but I thought I read somewhere recently that to the that that to date the most expensive wedding in modern day history was the wedding of Diana and who did she marry? Charles. Is that who it was? Yeah, it tells you how, how much I know. And I could be wrong about that, but, but it seemed like recently I read that. That is the way of royalty. My, when royalty is born, we know about it. When royalty is born, they got the best doctors, and they got the best hospitals, and they've got all the flyers, and they've got the announcements, and the whole world knows royalty is about to be born because of the place. And because of the finances, and boy, just because of of, uh, the wherewithal. But Jesus did not need all the advantages of this world to demonstrate his power and his influence. In Matthew chapter 2, this is interesting. Here is a little nobody, born nowhere. By the way, Micah chapter 5 verse number 2 tells us Bethlehem was nothing. I have visited it, and Micah's right. It's nothing. And so in Micah chapter 5, verse number, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Isn't it amazing? Jesus did not need a palace to be born in. It still affected the world. It still impacted the world. It didn't matter he was born in a lowly manger. Jesus still troubled all of Jerusalem. The facility doesn't matter. The worldly benefits do not help. Neither do worldly powers hinder. It's the love of God that changes lives. As a church, we seek not a new facility to give the church legitimacy, but simply to show him how much we love him 
but we are just as much of church and we have just as much power if we are meeting out in a field. Because God's word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and God does not need a palace to move mountains. He just needs people who are faithful and he had Joseph and Mary who were faithful in their calling, and it affected all of Jerusalem, even up to the king in the palace, who was greatly troubled. Jesus, without the benefit of massive finances or a multitude of followers, turned the world upside down, and he continues to change the lives of those who are willing to trust in him. The manger not only reminds us of his accessibility, It reminds us of his ability. Herod was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Not only does it remind us of his ability, it reminds us of our accountability. It reminds us of our accountability. Consider this morning the actions of the innkeeper. He's forever maligned in the Christmas story. And what did he do? Nothing. He did nothing. Surely had Mary and Joseph been somebody, they would have had some place in the inn. But because they were nobody... There was no room for them. And it wasn't as if the innkeeper innkeeper rejected them. He just didn't accept them. By the way, that's what we're going to be judged on when we stand before God. Not if we did nothing, but if we did something. There's always enough room for someone or something important. There was no room for him in the inn. Thus, by doing nothing, the innkeeper did something, and he made a huge statement, and he's forever been maligned in the Christmas story. I want you to consider the innkeeper's accountability. Just as the Christmas story holds the innkeeper accountable for doing nothing, God will hold us accountable for doing nothing. You know, when people, you ask people, if you were to die today, do you know for sure that you'd go to heaven? They begin to name a bunch of reasons as to why they ought to go. But what have you done with Jesus? Well, I haven't rejected him, and so therefore, he ought to let me in. But you see, we are accountable. God's word does not merely indicate that hell is reserved for those who reject salvation, but also for those who neglect salvation. Do nothing and see where it gets you. Hell is full of professed believers as well as belligerent atheists. As far as believers are concerned, God reveals that the backslidden Christian is not only uh, that person who is actively living in sin, but also that person who is passively living the Christian life. That's a backslidden Christian. 
passively living the Christian life, just like the innkeeper. No, he didn't kick Jesus out. He just never let Jesus in. To the passive Christians in Laodicea, Jesus said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. To the lazy steward in his illustration in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Jesus did not commend him for doing nothing wrong. He instead condemned him for refusing to do anything at all. And of course, that's what we're going to be accountable for when we stand before God. The fact that Jesus had to be born in a manger reminds us of our accountability. It reminds us of his ability. It reminds us also of his humility, his uh, accessibility. The fact that anyone at any time can come to him and accept him. The question that must be asked this morning, have you any room for Jesus? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head is bowed.